Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School Podcast, January 20th, 2023. This week we're going to be talking about one of us is going to Sundance, two of us, maybe three of us are going to Sundance, so we're going to be talking about getting ready for all of us are spiritually going to be in Sundance. <laughs> so we're going to be talking, uh, we're going to be kicking off a little like Sundance experience and strategies and festival strategies in general, because, you know, festis, festivals require strategy. We're going to be talking about theft. Not of feelings, not of ideas, but theft of physical objects. It happened to one of us, and we're going to talk about it and what filmmakers need to do to look out. Then we're going to talk about theft of ideas. There's a class action lawsuit against AI, which is not the battle against AI those of us who are big Terminator fans were hoping for. But a class action lawsuit is a good start in the war against the machines. And then we're going to be wrapping it all up with how Tom Cruise saved Todd Field from a ravenous Harvey Weinstein 20 years ago, which is just a fun anecdote. And if we have time, we might include some Joyce Carol posts, but only if we have time. But it, yeah, Joyce Carol posts is my favorite. All right, folks, first story this week. Who's going to Sundance? Gigi, you're going to Sundance. George, you're not going? No, not this year. So it's just, G and this is your second... This is my second Sundance. I'll be there with Ryan Koo, the creator of No Film School, and Alyssa Miller, a writer on No Film School. And we'll be oh, nice. doing a ton of podcasts and a ton of coverage. And we'll also have some folks writing remotely because you can also access Sundance remotely. Well, you can access the films remotely. The films remotely. You're right. You're right. And one but of this the is, yeah, this is exciting because, I mean, I'm glad Gigi kind of introed the team that's going because you all will be hearing from them next week when they're there. But, you know, we haven't done Sundance in person since 2020. The last time it was in person, Charles and I were there. We had a great time. It was a different world. And the world changed quite rapidly right afterwards. No one's gone to Sundance since. It's been remote in the years since then. And we have covered the remote version. So we know how to do that. We have people who do that. But this is kind of fun because... You know, so much of Sundance is the craziness of what happens in Park City and the vibe and the interactions and the people you see and the idea that someone who you live nearby in L.A. that you haven't seen in years, you'll be like, hey, let's get together in Park City. Why? I don't know, because when you're all in Park City, that's what you do. You don't see each other in L.A. You wait until you're going to be in Sundance. I can't tell you how many people this has happened to me with. You live in the <laughs> same city all your lives, literally. But then for some reason, if you're both in Park City, that's when when you're really busy, that's when you should get together. That's well, it. We all think that. Way. What you, like, are you like, let's meet up at the saloon bar? Are you going to Sundance? Because then we can meet up there. Why? We live in the same city. <laughs> I mean, I do it too. But like, why just that time? We're both going to be really busy there, right? I'm going to counter that the reason why it makes sense is because it's an event you're going to just for meetings. Like, yes. that's why you're there. And yes. they're there for the same thing. Like, I did a colorist roundtable uh, in the 2021, one of the podcasts, and, like, four of the five colorists were New Yorkers. They were all – they all have facilities in Brooklyn, one of whom teaches in the same building where I teach. <laughs> but she does night classes, and I have a kid, so I, I hadn't seen her in years. We'd emailed a bunch. And, like, Sundance was the time we got together. And the reason why is because if you're a busy working colorist, you're not available much. And you'll have an occasional day off, but is it going to be the day I'm off? 
I used to joke, you know, one of my best friends in L.A., I saw him more often on the road because he was a busy TV producer. And then, like, there was one year, the only time I saw him, I was driving through Jackson, Mississippi, and he was there doing a show, and we hung out for a weekend, and I crashed in his hotel. And that was more than I'd seen him in L.A. in years, and he's so one of my I closest I, friends. I think I can put my finger on it as an, L, as an L.A. lifer. Like, because what you're saying is true. It is kind of a, you go there to get together. But there's another aspect which is that Park City is a small town. This is also why yeah. they don't really like us being there. But I literally was walking down the street, literally. I was walking down the street in Sunday in Park City. Figuratively? Figuratively. Emotionally? And uh, walked by a guy who I went to kindergarten with. Really? I had seen him a couple times since kindergarten, right? Like, we run in similar circles. He's in the industry. And it was like, hey, hey, it's funny to see you here. And for, Let's get together here. We've seen each other more walking the streets there than we have in actual life in los angeles and, and that's that to me gratuitous about it you know that is why i think there's this magic to sundance and i went in 2020 the last time that it was in person and i also had a kindergarten run-in my <laughs> from kindergarten older what? brother had a, is a dp we ran into each other or we knew we were going and then we i was like i'm gonna come see your short it's in midnight shorts and then we went on a Sundance adventure, ended up at the UTA party, which we were not invited to. And now that person is the DP for all of my shorts for the last three years. From kindergarten? That, yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. A kindergarten <laughs> we, we, run in at Sundance. That's, awesome. that's the, yeah. I think that it is that it's because we don't live a small town life, but we live in a small business and we take our, yeah. our business to the small town life. And then it becomes, anyway, we've really gone off topic here, but this is all the fun stuff that happens when you're in person that if you can ever get there, not at like as a filmmaker or we're lucky often to go as press, but you know, Gigi, you went just as a person last time. I went as a person. I had, I think three tickets to films. This is actually a great tip. If you're going to be on the ground, we did it the scrappy way. We showed up, we didn't have passes or anything. We were staying at a friend's friend's family's basement four of us in Park City. And we just went with like an open mind. And I, I actually remember Charles giving the advice of like, hey, you're going to run into people on the shuttle. You may see that tickets are sold out for things, but keep checking on the app day of you can get tickets for sh for shows. And you can also hop in line. A lot of this sort of networking magic that happens happens while you're waiting in line for a film that you don't even get into. But then you're like, okay, well, let's go get a drink anyway. Um, so that kind of just going in with an open in mind you don't have to have a pass you don't have to be inside you can still have like a very amazing experience there and uh wear layers <laughs> and a mask everyone's gonna be mask. sick <laughs> yeah so one thing i'm curious about with sundance like what percentage of it is people who are there like as part of the industry and what percentage of it is people who are just there as a person as as you called it <laughs> Just like just being there to watch movies. And I stuff. think there is a mix. Actually, a friend texted me, bless her soul. She's a she's a travel nurse. And she's like, hey, I'm going to Sundance. I'll be there. Do you have a film there or will you be there? And I was like, I'll be there. I don't have a film there. But like, bless you for asking me if I had that. You're so outside oh. of the industry. So there are people who go just for fun and which is also part of the joy. But I also think that there are a lot of people who are who know it's important to be present and to be there, to be in the mix. And then I think there's a whole level of like people who are inside, inside the industry operating and with VIP access to all the parties and stuff that I don't even have. I mean, there, 
I ran into a friend from another friend who I grew up with, who was there as a person with a bunch of person friends. And they were just visiting to, they just were like, it's fun to go to Sundance. I know many people who do that. They're like, there's a lot of people who go to ski then actually, because the ski slopes are completely empty. So there's not a lot of people, but a lot of people are like, this is the best time to go skiing at Park City. Uh, but I ran into a guy who I knew really well in high school and he was like, yeah, me and a bunch of buddies just come because it's a great, you watch a ton of movies and it's a fun weekend and you go to all these bars and you just, you hang out and it's cool. I mean, it, there is definitely that there are audience people, but there's just a lot going on there. It can be and a little also, overwhelming. Ahead, there's also pure party people. I remember when we were there in 2020, I was at a screening at the multiplex on like the edge of town. And we, it was like the midnight screening or something. So we got out at like one in the morning and then we stood around talking to people for like an hour. So all of a sudden it was two in the morning and we were trying to get an Uber because the shuttle wasn't running there and we couldn't get one. And then this like black SUV rolled up and was like, you guys seem stranded. Do you need a ride? Oh. And like, the, I mean, yeah, this is, this is straight up male privilege though, that we felt safe getting in a random SUV yeah. with like some very tough looking dude who was driving. And then he drove us back into town and we had a nice conversation. And he was the bodyguard of a Russian oligarch who came to Sundance every year just for the parties. Oh. And he had just dropped the <laughs> oligarch back at the ski thing. And then he was driving back to his hotel and he, he was trapped. He had a big old gun. And we just had this like nice conversation with him oh. on the drive back into town. Dude, that is, which is, that is the start of a, of a really good like script. You need to, you need to <laughs> or a terrifying horror film. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, Literally, I, you know, he was like, I haven't taken anybody to a movie this week. Like everybody, like the people I am with are here shopping and partying. And mm -hmm. that is the whole, and like, that is the thing. But I want to take a step back and actually say, I think this is relevant conversation because I think a lot of our listeners haven't gone to Sundance and I did a stupid thing, which I think a lot of people do, where they're like, I'll go there when I've got something in Sundance. And I Me always too, like yeah. to reiterate that like, no, no, you start getting stuff into Sundance five years after you go regularly. Because you got to go regularly, first off, to meet everybody, but also to find out what they actually let in. Because, mm -hmm. oh, like, the that... one Sundance feature that makes it out to reality a year that you, I remember it used to say Sundance on the DVD box, but I don't know if they do that anymore. That's not a good indicator of, like, the overall landscape of the stuff they like to show. Oh, and so, like, absolutely. I was just going to say, if you're a 17-year-old listener or a 19-year-old listener and you're like, I'm going to go to Sundance when I'm 30 and I've got a movie in, start going this year or next year, volunteer, like, sign up to volunteer Find a place to crash, stay in Salt Lake City, whatever, and just start going and meeting everybody because that's, like, more important than anything else. And then eventually you'll have something there, but you'll have something there and you'll already know a bunch of people and you already know the thing. And the other thing I want to say is just flagging Gigi's thing where she's, like, didn't get into a screening. The crazy thing about Sundance is, like, how many things that you should get into you don't. Like, you'll be on the list for the party. You'll be on the VIP list for the party. And if you're not there 20 minutes before the party starts, you still don't get in. And you're like, no, but I'm on the VIP. And you're like, but, like, the line started an hour ago and you're still not getting in. But talk to the people in line. Wander to the other thing. Like, that's the experience of Sundance is it feels a little collegiate in that it's, like, so many people all together at once who are all, like, we would like to have fun right now. Yeah. Which is not something it's easy to recreate in the town you live in, I think. That all well said. A lot of things to follow up on. One is it's also like high school slash collegiate in that I definitely remember times wandering around and being like, I don't know anyone. I'm not with anyone I know. Everybody seems to be having fun. I don't know what to do. I'm just standing in a crowded street with no destination at the moment. Like, so there's all kinds of experiences to be had. But I, I want to just say, like, I'm glad you brought it up. I've said it countless past Sundances because it was the most stark lesson I learned the first time I went. 
I always thought I should go when I have something there. Like, I was like, what's the point of going? Like, why go if, if, you know, you don't have, like, it would be like going to Vegas without money to gamble or something. I mean, like, it was just like, you got to have something with skin in the game. Otherwise, like, I don't just want to be a person, an audience. But God, what I realized when I was there was that you learn so much about whether or not you even have a chance. Like, like the programmers talk before the screenings. They talk about what they picked and why. They talk about who they are. They talk about what Sundance is. Like just that alone will give you an idea in the future of if your short or feature should even be submitted because it could be a total waste of time and money for you. And it probably it was for me. Like I submitted stuff for no good reason with that had no business. It was just like not even on the radar of of a, of a Sundance movie. You get a sense so quickly of like good, bad, whatever of what Sundance wants, of what South by wants when you're actually there. And plus you meet people and whether or not they do this on purpose, like knowing people, knowing the labs, making the connections, like that's all part of the game and just understanding the community and the vibe. Like Mm -hmm. I, I can't stress enough like that. If you're really serious about one day having a movie or a short at Sundance. Also, the other part of that is that you realize how much stuff is there that no one will ever see. And no one will ever hear of. So the idea that if you you also have this idea, I did at least, that if you were to get something at Sundance, it's like like you take off, your career is happening. Not true. Like it's not it's not true. It you could have something at Sundance and you know struggle way more to make a living in the industry than someone who never even showed up there or had a single thing there. It's it's not like that. So I think that just the idea that you couldn't see everything there, even if you tried is a real reminder of the massiveness of it. There's so there's a lot of value to that. The, the, what you're saying about just because you get into Sundance doesn't mean your career is made. And I think of Eliza Hitman, who had her first feature, Beach Rats, at Sundance. And then afterwards, she was like, where are the agents and managers knocking on my <laughs> door? She had to yeah. chase them down and 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 force her her way into a way that it's actually really inspiring to hear that like you have to keep fighting for it and then last year she had her feature never rarely sometimes always and now she is i believe one of the judges in the dramatic u.s dramatic competition and it just shows how she was there probably before her first feature was there hustling and and creating a space and carving out a space especially if historically you're not like the typical Sundance director she created a space for herself to be there and now she's very actively part of it one thing that I'm very curious and to to see and I'll be like hopefully I'll be able to report back is is how the Sundance like buying culture has changed we were talking as a group before about you know the previous coverage we've done at No Film School and uh, I listened to this episode with that Ryan hosted about the like the end of the hot tub sexy buying deal closing culture at Sundance and now we're at a time where the streamers are pulling back a little bit I think it's going to be a sure bet for comedies and horror um you know there's a movie called theater camp coming out that has a lot of buzz around it already but what about the indie dramas what about the the starling girl which is coming out there or or more documentaries i'm very curious to see how those will be received some of them for example there's that one i watched a screener called king cole i'm like i have a feeling apple tv is gonna buy this because it's so i just need to throw out there too that like I've even been there in years where there was a movie that was playing a feature, 
by a young director, writer director that was good, getting good buzz and sold. And you still don't hear that name. You don't hear about that feature. You don't hear about that filmmaker. And that's not the only incident like that. So I'm just stressing that like, there is no, like these avenues all lead a billion different directions. Like there's no golden path. Like I think we have this idea of like Soderbergh and sex lies and videotape, you know, like, and I think that that created a narrative that we're attached to, but it's like, that's one in a billion, you know? And, uh, and, and I think at one in a billion to the billionth, whatever, <laughs> like, I think that it's just so, there's so much you can have, you could be there, have so much success. I ran into a guy Last time I was there, an old friend from L.A. comedy stuff, he was in a movie that I saw there that was amazing. He had a short there that was amazing. The movie came out. People, I was like, this movie's amazing. People got to see it. It just didn't get that traction. Like, I was in the theater for its midnight screening, people rolling in the, like, aisles laughing. Great (gasps) movie. I was like, this is going to do great. You know? It's just a weird, it's a weird business, man. Takes the pressure off. I sort of have a filmmaker. Because it's like, oh, it's a badge if you get into Sundance, but you don't need it. Because a lot of people said it, and they don't go on. Well, it's like the old joke about how Hitchcock never won the Best Director Oscar. And so you're like, you know, like, arguably the person that is most universally claimed as being, like, an early, like, auteur. And, like, never... So it's like external validation versus internal. The two things I wanted to riff on that you talked about, Gigi, is one sort of really looking at the um, buyer's market and how difficult it is for us to predict that right now because we've entered a world in which, like, look, the numbers we got from studios in the 80s and 90s were all lies and bullshit anyway. I mean, Peter Jackson eventually had to sue New Line because they claimed the Lord of the Rings franchise never went into profit. And, like, you know, so, like, those numbers were always uh, fugazi. But we at least got them. Whereas we're now in this strange space where a tremendous amount of the buying is going to be the streamers, right? Like the biggest thing out of Sundance the last couple of years, Coda, it ended up winning Best Picture. It was a Sundance purchase by Apple TV. And yet, like none of us, and like, you know, uh, we're all press e-folks. So like we're all on like these weird mailing lists of like analysts and stuff who are analyzing a box off, you know, stuff that's like clearly inside baseball, not marketed to the public. None of those people also have the data on what Coda did for Apple TV. I'm sure it feels nice to have a best Oscar award, but like, did that do more for Apple TV than Lucky, their animated film, or than Severance, or, you know, like we don't, we have no idea any of this, which is the world we live in now. And so it's like, it's you know, I remember there was a couple years ago, there was a year that Amazon bought a fuck ton of shorts out of Sundance. And I have a producer friend who's been predicting for 20 years that shorts are eventually going to be a revenue model. There are, there's there's going to be a revenue model for shorts. And I remember that year he was like, yeah, there were a couple $50,000 sales shorts Sundance this year. Like, it's coming. It's going to happen. It's going to be here. And then the next year, zero sales. Because I think if you stick to the same prediction every year, your whole life, you have a good shot that eventually <laughs> you <get it. laughs> um, I'm going to keep predicting planes will never fly themselves. And I'm going to keep predicting that because I think it's really hard and robots won't do it. Robots can't even drive cars. So it is like it is a weird thing to think about it going into sort of the sales marketplace as to be like, well, what will happen to these? Because the flip side of that. Like, the, the thing about sales is it increases the likelihood we will actually get to see the movie. And, like, that's the exciting thing is yes. you, sometimes you'll see something in a festival and you're like, motherfucker, that's great. I cannot wait until all of my friends see it and we can talk about it. And then, like, it doesn't sell and you, all your friends don't see it. 
and you're like, I don't even know where to tell them to go see it. And I can't talk all of them in. And it's like, I just want to be able to argue about movies with my friends. And for that to happen, a lot of them have to see it, which means a distributor has to market it. And so yeah. it's like, that's sort of the interesting thing, sort of walking into a Sundance thinking like how many of these are going to make it. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but even when there's a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once that I am like shouting from the rooftops that people should go see, it's still like not a huge retention. Unlike how many people I tell that finally get around to seeing it. Like no matter how many good things I say about a movie, there's a lot of people who will just feel like, yeah, I don't know. So like when it's a Sundance movie, and this has happened to me a few times where there's a Sundance movie that is, it does get distribution, but it's like not super easy or obvious. Like it's a streamer or something. I'm like, it's so good. You got it. You'll love it. There's like maybe one of 10 people will bother to find it because it's not, you know, so that, that, but yes, I agree. Yeah. Another Sundance tip I want to point out, go to the grocery store your first day there and always have snacks with you. Like like to everybody involved also there's surprisingly good bread at the grocery stores you can get like real sourdough bread at like every grocery store i think it might be a utah i don't know if mormons like good bread but like really like hearty good like no fillers no additives but like the food situation in sundance is the good parties have snacks but they run out fast so like bring food with you everywhere you go because oh my god especially if you're restaurants are packed the restaurants are also packed and the food's not great and they're overpriced because it's kind of touristy and it's hard to get in anywhere. And yeah, there's a lot. And you're going to get dehydrated and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you know, we were going to talk about this Todd Field thing last, but it's Sundance related. So let's 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 move it up the chain. This just went around the socials this week. Todd Field has a new movie out, Tar, which everyone is talking about. That is the movie that if I had been able to see it because I didn't have a kid, I would be able to talk about with people. First movie from that director, uh, Todd Field, was a little movie called Little Children, which sold out of Sundance back when that was like a big deal. Uh, Miramax bought it because that was before it was the Weinstein Company, right? It was Miramax at the time. And Miramax bought it. And Todd Field. This is it's in the bedroom. In the bedroom. In the bedroom. Sorry. What did I call it? Yeah. Little, little Children was the follow-up. Little Children was the second movie, yeah. In yeah. the Bedroom. Bought by Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein, very famous for recutting movies. Harvey, Harvey Scissorhands, that was his bad reputation before we learned he was a monster. And Todd Fields cried about it, which is, like, beautiful that he admits publicly to crying about how much he cared about his movie, like a very vulnerable thing. But Todd Field was friends with Tom Cruise because they had been together in Eyes Wide Shut. And Eyes Wide Shut is actually what inspired him to go make a movie is Todd Field had talked to Kubrick and like asked him all these questions. And eventually Kubrick said, like, just just go make a movie and you'll learn what you need to learn making the movie, which is like very Kubrickian advice. And so he made in the bedroom. And so he's crying and he calls Tom Cruise and I can't do a Tom Cruise impression. Does anybody have one? (laughs) Gigi? Not going to try. It's too hard. (laughs) He gave him great advice. He said, let Harvey make all the cuts that you need to make. And then test screen it and the audiences will hate it and then say, hey, but remember how good the Sundance screening was. Why don't we just release that cut? Mm. And apparently that's what happened. They recut it for six months. All the audiences hated the cuts. And Todd Field was able to convincingly argue. And it's an interesting thing because there's this ongoing conversation we always have about how much we can push back on notes and feedback. Mm -hmm. And there is a strategy where you're like, all right, well, let's just try it your way. And often that way sucks. And But there is a strategy of, like, he could have spent those six months exhausting himself trying to fight Harvey Weinstein and lost. Or he could have let Harvey Weinstein cut his movie up and then realize it sucked and get back to the good movie. It's a gamble, but it's an interesting one. So 
there's something I I want to find the careful way to say this, but there may be no way. I the last thing I want to do is give Harvey Weinstein credit for anything, right? So, <laughs> so that's what I want to avoid here. But listen, that strategy can't always work because some people. And maybe in other instances, Harvey Weinstein was like this because he's a notoriously horrible, even prior to what we know now as a criminal, um, a violent criminal. But before that, he was still probably pretty awful when it comes to this stuff before we knew that. And yet in this instance, logic won him over, I guess. And oftentimes people who are really awful like him about their tastes and it has to be my way, they will not see the logic. They will not accept the evidence that when they're wrong, they will not go back to the other way. They'll find some new crazy thing to blame like that. It's, Oh, well, you know, you, it's cause the guy I got to cut it, didn't cut it exactly the way that I thought, you know, the second time, whatever. There's always these, there are people out there that will always, always, always be right and fight against. And there's no mea culpa. There's no like, yeah, okay, we'll go back. Anyway, that said, so you know, th- there's always the risk, but I do think it's a really cool strategy to try and employ. And I think there's a uh, jujitsu element to it almost, or judo. That's what I want to say. Judo element where like you take the energy and you turn it around. But the Tom Cruise quote, I can't do an imitation, but the Tom Cruise quote is that he said, it's going to take you six months and you'll beat him, but you have to do exactly what I'm going to tell you to do step by step. So it's like, it was like a mission impossible prompt. Just so it was like the eye, like just, you could just imagine his eyes unblinkingly staring as he says it, like in a full close up. like, yeah. but I, there's like a, like a little bit of a pause at one point. Yeah. He just like, looks like that up at super him. psycho. You're going to win in six months. You're going to beat him. <laughs> like, but I, yeah, I love it because I, I mean, I kind of like, like another a hero of the story is obviously, Tom Cruise, who was like, let's make sure the best version of your movie gets out there. And you know, the best version of your movie, not Harvey Weinstein. But this is an interesting thing about how you attack problematic notes when you feel you genuinely know better, you know? Yeah. I was going to say like the, everything you said is kind of what my first thought was, was that that strategy doesn't typically ever work for me. Usually it's like the thing gets worse and then they're just like, uh, this was, this didn't end up being very good, but they still put it out in that. And you know, they put it out in that forum and I'm just like, no, but the other one was way better. You remember Don't when you it was better that? before you told me to do, do all you remember this dumb when it shit? Was good? <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't ever have the thing where the person's like, you know what, you were right. You were right from the beginning. Yeah. Well, my we're going to put out the good one. Knowing Tom Cruise is a very smart person and knowing Todd Fields is a very smart person is that in the end they did not sell it as Todd's version. My guess is that they said, "Harvey, do you remember how much you loved that cut in January? You remember Probably, the yeah. thing you, you bought? That's what yeah. you loved." And yeah, you know what? But- and like once you get over your ego and you let people think things are their idea, everything gets so much better. The number of time, like, and it's fucking hard when you're like, no, it was my idea. But eventually you're like, oh, yeah, I, my job is to make you think it's your idea. And it's so true. all Jedi. And like, I guarantee you, if Harvey Weinstein wasn't just like decaying in prison, he would say, oh, no, it was my idea to go back to that original cut. And like... <laughs> Fuck that guy. Uh, but like, Charles, yeah. what's that book? What's that book you bring up almost every podcast? Oh, Verbal there's, Judo? There's some, 
Verbal, verbal judo. Verbal yeah. judo. Just yeah. another. Okay, I keep every time we talk about it, I'm like, I need to go we buy that so I can read that. that. We, we should totally we need a book club. No film school <laughs> podcast book club. Verbal judo. Yeah, there's yeah. ways we do it that we don't realize, and then like you said, the ego thing of like for me, like as evidenced by the way I just spoke about it, the ego thing is never. Oh, my idea was better. It's that I want you to know. You were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very, like, I just don't, I don't need to be right, but I want you to know when you're wrong. Like, and I hate people who can't see that, but it's a thing. Like it's, and I mean, I sh- surely am guilty of it where there's been instances where I can't see that I was wrong about something. Like I remember reading in one of these other kind of similar books that we have a way of like when we play stocks, for example, like if you do, you'll be like, when you hit, when you're right, you made a good choice. When you're wrong, the market screwed you. Like we just have a way that we create narratives about everything where it's like, well, that was a result of my good result of my actions, bad, probably not my fault, probably accident, probably out of my control. Like, so like there's all kinds of tricks we play on ourselves without even realizing it about our ego. It's really interesting. This is a, this is sort of a side tangent, but I think it's relevant. I read the script of She Said, which is, of course, about the Harvey Weinstein, the New York Times reporter. Speaking of. <laughs> yeah. And um, and, and reading, in reading it, I haven't seen the film yet, but all of the uh, scripts that are, in for, that are for your consideration for awards are out and available right now. You can find them online and it's a great resource. But that script is an an art of dialogue that is verbal judo on both sides because they have the voice of Harvey Weinstein fucking with people in a way that I'm like, I see this manipulative monster. And of course this is a characterization and some of it has been fictionalized, but then you also see the journalists who uh, across the board are, are navigating this. And it was just a fascinating character study. And I think like, if you go in reading like, Oh, what would like, it was just, it's just a very fun read. I mean, an awful read, a great read, but an awful story, but a happy ending. All right. Well, speaking of happy endings, let's talk about an unhappy ending, theft. Uh, first, we're going to talk about physical theft and what filmmakers should know about physical theft. Gigi, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I just had my uh, catalytic converter <laughs> cut out of my Prius this weekend, and it brought me back to a when I was 21 producing a film in South Carolina, and we went into a Walmart and didn't lock the U-Haul and had all of our gear stolen and lost two days of footage. I've heard of much, much worse happening on film shoots, but, um, I, you know, we, we all, we talk about having like a fire watcher on set, but, but it, I think it's a, just an important reminder as we're making out there, making things and what to avoid. And I'm curious if you guys have horror stories as well. Um, so people magically know there's film equipment in cars. I don't know how they do, but like yeah. my buddy had a set of Kino, like this is 20 years ago, but like out of his trunk in Oakland, like Kino flows disappeared. And he's like, no one's ever broken in my trunk before. And my trunk does not have windows, but somehow they just knew there was film equipment in there. They could feel it magnetically and they opened it. And most production insurance doesn't cover it if it's in your car. It is like one of those like grand forgotten things of your insurance clause where you're like, oh, well, I'm not too worried about theft. But if it's in your car, it's supposed to be in your car insurance. And a lot of times your car insurance will bulk at covering like $150,000 worth of camera gear. So you have to watch your car. <laughs> you have to lock your vehicle up if you're like you always park where you can see it from the restaurant if you have to stop to eat. In New York and L.A., there are what are called bonded lots that you can park in where they're bonded and they have a security guard. When I was first starting my career, I lived near the bonded lot in L.A., Raleigh Studios. So I would like drive the truck to Raleigh with my bike in the back and bike home. 
and uh, it was like very convenient to live next to Raleigh. Um, oh but my there's god! Uh, let me tell over. you how inconvenient it was not to live next to Raleigh because <laughs> I learned I I learned from USC just like Charles did, even though I didn't go. And there was just a general policy that was like you took your truck, someone some poor soul, usually someone like me, like a producer or whatever, had to drive the truck back to Raleigh and lock it up and then get their car and then drive home, which means you were the last to leave because everything had to be loaded up, but even more last to leave because you had to go to the least convenient place in Los Angeles and then get in your car and then drive away. And as soon as I no longer, like once you, like that's my, basically my answer was the same as what Charles is saying, which is like the more precautions you take, the better. Um, But you find later when you're doing things your own way that if you leave the truck on location overnight and like it, it doesn't mean anything's going to get stolen. Right. Like, so you can get away with not doing those things. It's just that mm. you run this massive, massive risk and you kind of learn what risk you're comfortable with and what your insurance policies will cover. But to me, if you have valuable stuff that you can't afford to lose, you should probably make sure to park it somewhere locked and safe. I did the same thing in New York. Had to drive to a bonded lot like across the city. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it it, do, it doesn't matter where you live, honestly. Like my my buddy, he had literally every single piece of gear that he ever owned. Like it was like at least fifteen thousand dollars worth of stuff taken from his car in like the middle of nowhere, like West Texas. And you know, it, you just like when when you're especially when you're driving around with everything and you're going into the restaurant, it's really you know it's like you got to you know, you got to perpetually be the, the, the person with the Ari Alexa in your lap at the Chili's, you know, like you just got to, you got to take all the important stuff in with you wherever you're going. Just don't like drip Charles branch said, dressing I, on the <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'd rather that than have it missing altogether. But like, yeah, I mean, the, the, that, that whole thing is so true. Like, I, I feel like they just, whoever the, these, these people breaking into the cars, they just have like some sort of a radar for like, there's an expensive piece of film gear that I don't even know what it is in there, but I'm going to steal it. Sometimes you know, they're it, desperate. It, it, like I've had car break-ins so many times where they didn't take anything, even valuable stuff, because they didn't recognize it was valuable and the person is like desperate and they just grabbed what looked valuable and got out. Like it, you run such a risk. Like I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like and I'll, another thing, even if you have a truck with like a padlock on it, mm-hmm. it's not as safe as you think. Because you just buy some bolt cutters, you snap that thing open, and you can take everything. Yeah. Like, And there are people who will do that because there's a truck. So, you know. Yeah. It's also film gear is getting more commoditized and thus easier to resell. So, like, the NYPD used to have a detective who had a specialization in motion picture equipment. There's even an article about him written in the 90s. Because if you sold a 35-millimeter camera or if you sold, stole a set of, like, in the in the nineties, like ultra primes, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars lenses, but really easy <laughs> to track down whose ultra primes they are if you're trying to sell them. If they show up on eBay, <laughs> everybody's going to know. If they show, like like a very small market, and so there was an NYPD guy who like like had an expertise in motion picture stuff. Could like you could like report to them like oh this is stolen and fam-. but like. I got in touch with him and he's like, oh, yeah, I don't cover motion anymore. And then there was another story recently about Atlanta's thriving market in stolen motion picture goods because, like, there are so many red Komodo cameras out there that, like, if one shot shows up on eBay, if one shows up on Facebook Marketplace, the odds are stolen are relatively low because a lot of people also sell their used gear, which is completely different than it was sort of 20 years ago where there was sort of 
more of an expertise. So we're in this weird space where it's still like very expensive stuff in small packages, but now there's enough of it around that it's like, it is less obvious. The big thing for me is, you know, desperately try and avoid buying. I don't think I've ever bought anything stolen, but one of the ways you can be sure you're not buying anything stolen is ask a fuck ton of questions from the person you're buying it from, because that's the other end of the marketplace. If there's nowhere to sell it, because every time they try and sell it and people are like, Ooh, these ultra primes, like what generation are they? And what are the serial numbers and what projects you shoot with it? And people are like, ultra primes you'll know that they stole it and you'll be able to report them if appropriate the other thing we always get to talk about when we talk about theft is voluntary parting which i didn't even know about voluntary parting voluntary parting so this is some shit so if you put your gear up on share grid or kit split you think to yourself oh well it's on share grid and there's insurance so if someone rents it and they don't return it i'm covered right that's actually not theft that's considered voluntary parting because you rented it to them so if you rent it to them and then someone steals it from their set, but you're still talking to them, the insurance will cover it. But if the person you rent to steals from you, that's not covered by insurance. So ShareGrid and KidSplit and all the other platforms have something called voluntary parting coverage, and you should get that if you don't trust the person. And again, if you're renting your gear out, evaluate. Ask them a lot of questions. Oh, what are you shooting with this? What are you using it for? Who are you? Like, if they want to pick up your gear and go be suspicious if they're willing to spend half an hour talking to you about stuff and they're like, Oh, I, I'm so impressed. You have the Alexa optical viewfinder because I'm using this thing. And I, Deacon's really love. The, then you're like, Oh, okay. You're a nerd. I can rent to you, <laughs> but just be on nerd lookout as much as you can. Also, if you have a Prius, like half the people I know with Priuses have had their uh, cat stolen. Can yeah. you do anything about it? Can you put like spikes you on it? Or it something? Uh, you can, you can weld something over it. Yeah. Think, well, put a right. thing on top, put a cage over it, put a metal thing on top. Actually, I think it's really important to know because I'm sure a lot of filmmakers have Priuses these days. So many. Um, <laughs> and then also put your spray paint it yellow is a cheap way to do it. I've learned all about this on a CBS local news story and, uh, and like etch your numbers in it, have your mechanic do that because it, th these things are on back order for months and it is, uh, there's, precious metals in it so people can sell it for 120 bucks but it, the inconvenience is really awful um so yeah watch out for your priuses and watch out for your film gear and be the person with the aria alexa in your lap at the chilies take your catalytic converter in with you to the restaurant <laughs> i know with your aria alexa uh, yeah I, i'm the opposite share the blooming like, onion with them yes exactly that's like a beautiful date. That's a rom-com. I love this. Theme. There you go. Yeah. I mean, so I heard a hard-boiled detective story about the guy trying to track down Komodos in Atlanta somewhere in there, Charles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I was so bummed. I wanted Spade to do like a whole gear. thing on the NYPD movie cop. And I, I got in touch with him and he was like, oh, yeah, I don't do that anymore. And like there was some backstory there, but he was, was smoking and he yeah. was in a dark room. <laughs> He's like, I haven't thought about a motion picture camera in a long time. All right, last story. The war against the machines is starting. So Stability AI is one of the billions of AI companies that are competing to, you know, as somebody on social media pointed out how sad it is that, like, instead of AI getting rid of jobs so that we can spend more time making art, it's getting rid of making art so we can spend more time on our jobs. <laughs> it's just, like, very sad. But stability someone AI, I know, someone I know on that note made a comment that was like, I did not think this is a person who is a pretty successful screenwriter. He was like, I always thought robots were going to replace people. I didn't think I would be one of them. <laughs> yeah. Like of all the people I thought, I did not think it was going to be me. But here we are. Yeah, it's 
it's scary times. It's scary times. But so it's like like ro- robots can make art, but I still have to do my taxes. Like what's going on? <laughs> yeah. we're, we're doing this all wrong. Oh yeah. <laughs> Musk is into it anyway. I'm not gonna go off on my into it rant, but fuck that. <laughs> yeah, or just yeah, like laundry, or like I mean, I don't know. There's so many things that like can't we figure that out? Like yeah, so that I could spend more time drawing. So anyway, to build stability AI and to build all of these AIs, they have to scrape publicly available data. You know, all of those chatbots. It's really interesting. I've been thinking about this lately. So all the chatbots get trained on everything that's ever been written. What's fascinating, someone pointed that this is not my original observation. Someone else pointed out that, like, at this point, everything that's ever written also includes chatbot stuff. So as we go into the future, the chatbots are going to get trained on their own chatbot shit, which means... They're high on their own supply, man. (laughs) Which means the corpus of everything written before 2018 is what they will always be trained on, right? If you're designing a training system, you're not going to include any writing from after it's AI-influenced. It's like, if you guys don't know, there's pre... Uh, you can buy pre-atomic steel because all steel after the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki have atomic radiation built in it, which doesn't affect most things. But if you're making like sensitive medical instruments, you need pre-atomic steel, which means you need to buy steel from before 1945 and all of the tests that came after to work. And like there are people who salvage shipwrecks to get at the steel to have pre-atomic steel, which is what writing from before 2018 is going to be. So in order to build Stability AI, they scraped a platform called DeviantArt, which if you haven't heard of DeviantArt, you were not on the internet in 2004. (laughs) DeviantArt is not as dirty as the name would imply, although I'm sure there's dirty stuff on there. But DeviantArt was just one of the, like, early platforms for uploading, like, fan art and, like, like, it was like a Flickr competitor. It's not nearly as deviant. I, I never understood why that name was what it was. Marketable. But a bunch, they scraped DeviantArt. I don't. I think you missed part of the early days of Deviant Art. I think. Oh, really? Was it? Was there some film? <laughs> it was a little more. Yeah, there was. There was some stuff. You know, there was some things on some there. Slash that, fiction. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they had some stuff on there okay. that that warranted the 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 name. I take the back moniker. my libel, yes. Deviant Art. You're plenty deviant. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna king shame you. You you earned your name. But regardless, <laughs> um, so a bunch of users who had their work scraped to build. DeviantArt to build Stability AI and, oh, it's not actually DeviantArt users. It's general users of other places that got scraped. Well, yeah, I, I think DeviantArt has their own brand of AR, AI uh, bullshit now. <sighs> so it's, they're, 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 they're one of them. So it's like there's Stability AI, which I think is Stable Diffusion. Yeah. And then mid-journey deviant art and um i see this thing that's weird to me is they don't include uh open ai and in, in the it, it's just like i guess they're going primarily over image-based yeah theft when i you know it's just interesting like it's just such a so i there's in terms of the writing i asked one of the writing ones i've, I've tested them not lately but not chat gpt a different one and there was a whole thing when i learned all about how it works that explained how it cuts off at like, I don't know if it was 2018. It might've even been a little earlier, but it was like, it, it was like they explained in a video, the cutoff date phenomenon. And it was that like, it only knows historical events and stuff up to this point, because after that it starts to be a part of the conversation. So yeah. it's like almost like uh, a weird, like history ender. Like it'll be well, like, they're, a, they're it'll already... be like, you know, ADBC because like, or BCE because 
before the robot could write, like everything was original with that sort of sense. And then after the robot could write, because what we'll get, you guys remember the movie Multiplicity? This is one of my favorite metaphors of all time that I use in every way all the time. But the movie Multiplicity, multiplicity Keaton, and Serendipity mixed up. I, which right, the, so, one okay, with John so Cusack. Multiplicity <laughs> is the one where, where Michael Keaton clones himself. But then okay, what happens okay. is he starts cloning his clones. So he's it's like it, they had like a Xerox machine mentality, which is that like he'll get a little faded each time. And so like his third or fourth clone down is like really hardly a functional human. And I feel like that's what's going to happen with AI art is that we're going to get this like di- like if, if AI writing and AI art keeps cycling into its formula they'll start to create stuff even though now there's some really cursed non-functional human elements to ai art and writing it'll just be like feeding itself its own nonsense and then it'll stop making any sense at all because it'll just be but like, that but that's just with each like particular iteration of the engine though like like right now we're on chat gpt3 but apparently microsoft is already working with G- gpt4 which is said to expand the the data set like twenty fold. So they're gonna feed it everything. And, yeah. And but I think I think they I little like literally I read the other day that I think Microsoft saw GPT four and they were like, whoa 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 whoa, tap the brakes. We need to be careful. This is getting kind of out of control. So I think I I don't know. I I think they're heavily tied into the funding of all of it and all that sort of stuff. And I think like I don't know. I, they're already using it in. They're they're trying to work it into Bing. Um, that's their search engine, right? Bing. Yeah. That I, is I so can't even sad. Remember the name of it. That, <laughs> yeah. That well, they make money. Yeah, that that realization. Like right. I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't confidently say that that's what what it was called. That's also, how I could have argued to you it. it was Bong, and I probably could have won <laughs> if I tried hard enough. Yeah, probably. If I really I gone like, for it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Bong. Okay, Bong. But yeah, no. It, they're just like the the next. You know, I think there's. There's a lot of theories. Okay, because I am full on foil hat about this stuff, and I I've been you know just doom scrolling about AI since it started. And there's there's a strong theory that like what we are seeing is not even remotely the tip of the iceberg of what actually exists, and that there's just going to be a moment where they go, okay, now it now it's out, and it's going to be like whoa, you know, like they're they're being careful about rolling this stuff out, but it is like. Uh, you know, I think there's so much more happening underneath the surface that oh, we don't know about. I don't, I don't and doubt for, it for, for a second. For Microsoft to say, hey, tap the brakes, this is creeping us out, like, and knowing the ex- insane amount of money they can make off of something like this, like, you know, that tells you something. But th- this thing, okay, so this this lawsuit is interesting to me. First off, I can't really figure out, I, I'm I'm like, right now as we speak, I'm like looking at the article about it. I can't figure out who is actually doing the lawsuit besides like an actual law firm, but they're going after a, essentially stable diffusion, which their their main thing was like they were the ones that were using ArtStation as as uh, imagery to train their engine and stuff, and like so that definitely is like full on theft of art in my in my opinion. But it's interesting because like they they I just feel like you can't like. That's like shouting, like trying to sue the eye of Sauron. Like you're, you're like, you're, there's nothing you can do. It's, it's, it's done. You know, like there's, there's people making things with these engines, like in their, you know, bedroom, there's people making AIs that can make code plugins for blender. There's people, you know, you can type in a prompt and it'll 
kick out a 3D model, a really bad one, but you know, it's just like everyone has access to this. You can't like just be like, stop, don't do that. I actually, copyright I, law I'm, stuff I'm gonna, is I'm really strange. I'm going to disagree, Todd. I think you can. Like the thing, Dave Carp, who well, I uh, hope they do. Let yeah. me be clear about that. Like, I hope, I hope they can stop it. Yeah, Dave Carp, who uh, is the blogger. I mean, he's the GW professor who got famous for making a joke about Brett Stevens and roaches at the New York Times, and then Brett Stevens like tried to get him fired over it, and that made Dave Carp famous because like trying to get people fired often backfires on you and weirdly we went to high school together he has a great article about like <laughs> the weird thing about where we are with ai right now is it's a lot like the internet in the year 2000 where there's a lot of shit going out and no one knows how anyone's going to monetize it and there's a very real possibility that like in two years none of this will be available to us anymore because they're going to figure out how to monetize it and then the free fun of it will go away and what's interesting to me about this lawsuit i have worries about this particular lawsuit but the but the fun of, for me of this lawsuit and the reason i'm excited about it is like Regulation does affect big companies all the time. Like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which basically said what's on your platform is not your responsibility unless it's child porn, is the reason why like so many of these platforms are so wild. I, I, I in general like that thing. But if that law hadn't been passed, we wouldn't have the Internet as we have it. And like that's a good thing. Mostly, I think I think most of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is good. But like we could try and sue the fuck out of this to kill it. Or we can try and regulate it. The, my worry about this lawsuit is I think it's going to be really hard to prove in court that you're a protected class. Class actions are tricky. Like there's a famous class action where Walmart, like female employees of Walmart, tried to prove that they were a class as female employees of Walmart to prove <clears throat> sex dis uh, discrimination. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court was like, no, you're not really a protected class. You kind of have to sue one at a time. Like each of you. Every woman at Walmart needs to individually sue about wrong treatment, which is obviously never going to happen. And, like, my worry here is that, like, what's nice about this is a group of users of one platform that got scraped got together. And I'm like, ooh, you're going to be able to argue convincingly you're a class. But, like, all of humanity should be suing about having everything we ever – you know, if you wrote a blog in 2002 – that was public on LiveJournal or whatever existed back then. Like that's been scraped oh, by I AI. Did. I did. And like that was, it wasn't <laughs> my, in the terms of use account. you agreed to, but it has been. And like, I don't know. I'm it's mixed just, on AI. It's a really, really complicated thing because everything we wrote, like this is where I get more into the kind of philosophical esoterical area that I like about it because everything we wrote was kind of reorganizing of ideas and laws and theories about writing and structures of writing. So we are just kind of like the AI is, is weirdly picking up what a human does. Like, so you can't like, you know, in the most, uh, in the simplest way to explain it, it's like how much is star Wars like the wizard of Oz, like quite a bit. Right. But like, it's like, it's, it's not like, you can't say like like an a, a like we keep reforming things and ideas. But every time we write something, we're like kind of reforming and iterating on concepts and ideas within human knowledge and language. So the AI is just it. There is an argument to be made that the AI is kind of creating something original by reforming the ideas and the and the language or the images that it's seen or whatever. I think we get into a really tricky place, and I don't like that. But I could see that being part, like I think you're right though. 
we live in some, in a in a culture dictated by an economy like that's our model so however money ends up factoring into this will be however this ends up being decided that's my simplistic yeah. way of looking at it like however it's monetized best however the most powerful monetary figures choose to wield this this sword will be what decides how it's wielded and if that's because there are regulations like you said if there's lawmakers who again because it'll be moneyed interest for those lawmakers they're not operating based on ethics outside of that right as much as we would pretend or want to pretend they are so it's going to be about like financial might and i think we don't really know yet where that's gonna how that's gonna play out because the tool is new but like you said when the internet was new there were a lot of questions about like what is this thing going to be like like I don't think we knew that with like LexisNexis, for example, that Google would end up being this power player. Like, I don't think we knew that something like an encyclopedia would end up being the most important thing about the internet necessarily, or a bookseller like Amazon. Like, so it's very hard to know how, when a new technology comes along, how will it be wielded most powerfully in the marketplace? I think that's kind of like, if, if I was going to try and guess the direction of the AI stuff, I would say... Who's going to be the Google of AI? Like, who's going to figure out the way to make this the most powerful, like, brand? And I don't know yet. But I do know that, not just anecdotally, but, like, if Microsoft is on ChatGPT4, Bob Iger wants AIs to start writing some scripts. Like, I think that there's going to be, like, widespread ways that this starts to infiltrate and impact and change everything. And uh, what we should probably do, here's what I've seen at No Film School in my tiny corner of the Internet. When we talk about, when we write about the doom and gloom aspect of it, people don't seem to want to read about that, surprisingly. Um, when we talk about the things about it that like how you might be able to survive in an AI world or how you might be able to use this tool in an effective, interesting way, people are kind of like, you know, I think we're going to all have to figure out how to live with it at some point. And it's a very, it's just like, how do we make it? the T-1000 from T-2 and not the T-1000 from the original Terminator in 1984. Like, that's kind of where we've got to be, I think, like, thinking. That's my and so you would, spiel and, on it. And in your mind right now, the AI is naked. It hasn't even beaten up a biker for its clothes. <laughs> yes, it's just like exactly. a naked has, muscular no, Arnold right, Schwarzenegger. So right now, it just walked into that biker bar and it's just taking people out. <laughs> That's where I think it is right now. It is taking people out. And there's a lot of us who are just like, holy what? shit, look what that thing's doing. That thing can do anything. And I don't know if it's going to be used for good. I don't know if it's come to save John Connor or to kill him. But we'll find out soon, I think. <sighs> yeah, we definitely can't. We can't stop it. And it's going, it's going to just be a weird little chunk of time till we figure it out like that's i mean that's kind of where i've landed with all of it but i i definitely think there are just like things that are kind of common sense like that shouldn't be happening you know just the the stealing of art and things like that and um people people passing their ai art off as like something that took some sort of skill to create like things like that bother me but it's it's mostly like I, you know there's like there's like uh ai is going to help with like human de-aging eventually like we're going to be able to live forever eventually because of ai or like, think at the very least like i've said before some of us will be able to like message each other forever which is terrifying but yeah. we'll be able to message dead people a we'll lot. all be living in the metaverse and yeah. you know zuckerberg is right <laughs> i i i just what scares me the most about it like i said i would doom and gloom wasn't popular but i always keep is that the way 
things like Google and Facebook, like the way big tech uses information and technology can be so invisible and powerful and addictive mm -hmm. that that aspect, what they, you saying something like Microsoft had to tap the brakes is just such a terrifying phrase to me. Like if they were like, whoa, this is too powerful. This is too scary, guys. Like we can do too much. <laughs> it feels like there is a wisdom that didn't exist before at the acceleration points of the internet. And so I think that's why the brake tapping is happening now. Because before and you know famously the head of Google ads has totally changed his tune on He's like, this is evil. It's like somebody controlling access to water, like, which also exists too. So, uh, but I, 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 it gives me hope that Microsoft is tapping the brakes. And I also feel that it, an AI is going to scan all of our podcasts and then keep the podcast going after we all die. So that's exciting for our listening audience. <laughs> It totally could. It's not, it's just a question of if someone would want to, it, because you know that they like can recreate everything Darth Vader says. I always come back to this with James Earl Jones's sound bites yeah. from the past. So we are all like fully logged. Like someone could talk to us forever now, probably. I mean, if they, if they spent enough money trying. An interesting side note of that is like separate from recreating us, which like, Frankly, from Disney's standpoint, we're cheap. Like, just buy us. Yeah, we're not, yeah. As, right now, I mean, yeah. we're not very, who knows what's going to happen. But at this point in time, I don't think anyone's super interested in recreating the four <laughs> of us, though they could if they wanted to. But I to. do think that there's an interesting thing to think about real-time analysis of what's going on in content creation. Like, it, I, I interrupt a lot. I know I interrupt a lot. I'm working on it. It's a, it's a thing. We're continually growing people, imperfect, heading towards improvement. But if... If there was a little bot that was that it was at the bottom of the screen that was like you've interrupted people five times already on this call, Charles, and then like gave me a little electric shock through my Apple Watch <laughs> the next time it could tell I was about to do it. I mean that is an interesting like I don't know. There's like I my instinct is always kill it with fire about AI. Like I don't trust. I don't have a lot of trust that we're that it's going to be a smooth and easy transition. I don't think it's going to replace us the same way I don't think – like we still can't make cars drive because it turns out that everything outside of the computer screen is really hard. And like people are dying from full self-driving in Tesla already because like self-driving cars are always a year away and they will be for another 200 years. So like I'm I'm more worried about like the things that happen on the screen than I am about reality. And the things that happen on the screen – I don't know. I'm like – like, we are at the point where it is going to cost the ladder climbing job. I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Like, the bit, like yeah. color assistant will get eaten. Editorial assistant will get eaten. You will be able to have an AI that organizes your footage for you. Ingest, sync, and organize will be automated. And, like, that's the thing that I'm like, well, fuck. Like, what job is a 22-year-old supposed to get so that they can get to the ladder and get up the ladder or in 50 years, is it just going to be the like people of our generation are the only people who know how to do anything because everybody below us couldn't get on the ladder. And that's the thing that I'm like, can we just kill it with fire? Cause right now everybody's used to paying for that assistant, mm -hmm. but the second yeah. they don't have to, they won't. And that's the thing that I'm like, uh, uh. yeah, well, my interrupter buzz that I've downloaded went off like crazy today. Yeah. So I apologize. <laughs> my my Apple Watch interrupter was going on fire. Yeah. Because I was so excited yeah. about all these topics. But I did want to add that there could be one exciting thing about this, which is that there may be a new value placed on analog creation 
and on bespoke, I don't really like that word, but it makes sense here, material. So like a handwritten thing, like might become very valuable. Well, but you've seen her, hand- right? Yeah, right. Yes, I mean, of course. Yeah. But like, but like when her came out, it seemed kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Like it seemed insane. And now like he writes, it seemed like only something Spike Jones would be like, or, or the Coen brothers, like he writes love letters for a living. Like a human wrote this means something, but like we could get to a place where those things and anything analog and maybe even a movie, like you'll see a lot of movies and be like, this movie was probably largely AI generated, but then someone will have like shot something on celluloid with only humans and it's only projected. Like you can't see, like there might be some like version of art that you can get that becomes special in its own right and valuable because rarity is unique, but I don't know what the marketplace will be like for that. But there's a part of me that does think like human to human interaction might become super valuable, might be the business people want to move into as opposed to businesses that happen all over the internet. That's like, like I could not have scripted a better setup for what I was going to talk about in our pitch, plug your pluggables at the end. Like it's, it's eerie. It's creepy. It makes me think you're an AI. Like I'm like a little bit uncomfortable right now. Cause I, you know, well, I think we're wrapping up. So we're, we're going to plug your pluggables. And what I was going to plug is I'm like 50, 50 going to try and teach an analog cinematography class in Brooklyn this summer, shooting 35 millimeter. So if you are a film Ooh. student, like it's a four credit class. So like you could transfer the credits back to your school. If you're like, I would fucking spend a summer in Brooklyn, like living in Brooklyn and shooting 35 millimeter. Um, Hit me up on Mastodon or uh, my website and be like, yeah, I think I would take that. Because I'm like debating whether or not I should run that this summer. Um, 35 millimeter, George, in person, shooting 35 millimeter on stages and on location. Like, what a, what a great setup you gave me, you weird robot. I mean, I- what do I have to do to take the class? <laughs> like, how do I get my family to Brooklyn this summer? I'm not even joking. Yeah, like, that sounds, that sounds awesome. so fun. Right. Can I also make a plug for the new No Film School DP school, also taught by Charles, if you can't make it out to Brooklyn. Uh, I listened to the podcast you guys did last week, and it was so exciting and fun and cool to hear about the history of how it came to be. And it feels like a really amazing resource uh, for No Film School to offer a school of sorts. It's controversial. Okay. <laughs> I d- I'd forgotten that I should be plugging that. Yeah, we did a course called How to Make Money as a Cinematographer. How am I not? Yeah, plug in the thing that. Oh, I would have brought it up. Yeah. Okay. There's also (laughs) going to be. Yeah, I'm on it. That's that's why I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) That and interrupting people. (laughs) Um, I actually want to see if any of our listeners have questions for filmmakers at No Film School. We'll be doing a cinematographer roundtable, a a editor roundtable, talking to a bunch of directors and writers and actors and. TV show creators and development people. So if you have any questions, uh, shoot us an email, editor at nofilmschool.com. Todd, do you want to say anything? Oh, am I, okay, I didn't know if that <laughs> was like... <laughs> okay. so you, you can go, and then I'll well, go. Uh, yeah, go check out the... Uh, the, 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 the course is really cool. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of it. Um, so definitely go check out that, that new course. And um, yeah, you can find me at uh, Am I Filmmaker on various internet places. And I'll just add about the course. Todd also was pretty involved in the course and in the marketing materials. Charles obviously was very involved. I was somewhat involved peripherally, but it's a 
you know, we're very excited about it. When this episode comes out, pricing may have changed. So you'll have to go over to nofilmschool.com and check it out. We had early release pricing. Um, we had pre-pricing. Things may have changed a little bit. So be sure to check it out. It's on the website. It'll be on the front page. Um, you can also listen to the podcast that we have an ad running on this podcast that gives you information about the URL to visit, but it's how to make money as a cinematographer. Again, it's not just about like, how do you light? How do you, you know, move a camera around? What kind of lenses do you get? It's how do you have a business? How do you survive? How do you have a sustainable career? How do you buy gear? How do you save money buying gear? All this kind of interesting nitty gritty stuff that can actually lead to a life doing this and not just a dream. So all that and more, go over to nofilmschool.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snoots and all the good stuff, and uh, send us your questions at editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>